Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And me. That's it. We're just two people. It's nice and cozy. I'm Sasha Wolf, and this week we talk about concurrency. So we were thinking a lot about, okay, before we hit the record button, what should be the topic of today's panelist episode? And something I think we haven't really tackled in depth yet. Like we only tangentially talked about it in lots of different scenarios, but never really in depth is concurrency. And just before we hit record, I said to Alan that we have already in the past mentioned quite often that the OTP and the Beam and the Elixir, that they offer features and the things they offer like that, that's something you might really only be able to appreciate if you suffered on some other platforms. And one major contributor of that, in my opinion, is concurrency, because I think that's one of the key selling points of the Beam. Concurrency and also parallelism, which are two distinct things. But yeah, that is, like I said, something the Beam does pretty well, but Maybe maybe to get the ball rolling, and like before you came to Elixir, what was like your language of choice, and, and how was concurrence the concurrency story there? Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com/podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, DevChat.tv to Top End Devs, but. What I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Wow. I mean, my language of choice before that was definitely Ruby. And I think concurrency was definitely something we didn't really think too much about. I mean, we had threads, but, you know, you always had that global interpreter lock that everybody really knew about. So it's kind of like, well, if you ever want to do something concurrent and parallel, you just spin up a bunch of different Ruby processes and have them talk to each other. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was just never a thought at the time. This was like around the time, a few years after you started getting multiple core processors. But nobody was really doing anything with multi-core processing at the, for quite some time, actually. Yeah, and the thing, I think the story there is also that like multi-core processors are, comparatively speaking, like a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, like the last decade, a bit more than that. Before that, it was always like single core getting faster and faster and faster, right? And in that case, having something like, like Ruby, which is optimized, at least back then, Ruby 2, towards single core performance, or not, let's not, let's not say optimized towards performance, but focused on that. And then that, that makes sense. But then like with, 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 with the advent of um, multi-core processes also in, like in consumer machines and not just, I don't know, in the cloud with like a bunch of VMs or having multiple CPUs maybe built in, whatever, then that became a whole lot more important. And from my understanding also that Ruby 3 is doing a lot more in that area, right? I, I'm not in the picture, to be honest, but I, I, I've seen articles and, and headlines and that kind of thing, which do mention that there's a lot more going on for Ruby Free in terms of I had the pleasure of talking of actually sitting next to Mats, Mats, the creator of Ruby, quite a few years ago in Taiwan. 
and we had to talk about this. And nice. unless something changed majorly, actually, it's really funny because like he came in and he like had his lunch train. He's looking around for somebody to sit next to, and he didn't know who he could sit next to. And this is Ruby Conference in Taiwan. Why does nobody want to sit next to this guy? So I flagged him over. I don't know. People wasted their opportunity. Anyways, so I sat next to him, and we did talk a little bit about Ruby three quite a few years ago. And I believe what they went was actually very much a Elixir-like style of having processes, something similar to a process, but I think they're called... Actors? the name? <laughs> no, yeah, no. But they, it wasn't called Actor, I think, but it absolutely was Actor Pattern. I think it was called Rogue or something. I had to look this up, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of copying off of what Ruby, or sorry, what Elixir did and Erlang's doing. So it's quite interesting. It is, uh, uh, but actually, actually, well, sorry, but one last thing. I did remember something. For like Python and Ruby who are have the GIL, the Global Interpreter Lock, there was always a way to get around it with something called event event buses or no, not like event buses but they're called event IO systems so the only way you can yeah. get around it is that you have to be making read write requests and then you could be doing something with CPU at the same time that was the only way you can actually get around it for doing uh, like kind of concurrent stuff in the same program I mean isn't that pretty much what Node.js does in a nutshell for example I mean Node.js is sort of the, the, the whole idea how this works is built around having the event loop which basically gets filled up when in fact if you want to do IO or work and then like it takes care of executing other things until there then is a response to your IO work request. And so this is basically how it con achieves concurrence. Isn't really concurrency at that point? I don't know. But how, how you don't really get stuck <laughs> with everything uh, and, and don't have to and don't have to consider okay now this this read well, I don't know this file read takes so and so long. But it also like I'm Node.js in the very early versions you had the scenario of like callback hell it was called, right? Because you had callbacks and callbacks and callbacks. Then promises came along, which at least made that a lot a whole lot nicer. But yeah. At the end of the day, what my experience also was, I did a fair share of things in, in my career. Like I, I did edit Java, I did actually C embedded work, I did PHP, I did what else did I do, some Python here and there. What all of these languages have in common, at least from when I last used them, is that like you when you want to tech go into concurrency because you actually have a use case where you say, okay, I actually have a whole bunch of work here that I would like to do it somewhat in parallel, maybe, which then again, like I mean concurrency just means you have the notion of not only doing one thing at a time, but like that you can do multiple things at a time, which does not mean that it's like physically executed all at the same time. That's only really achieved with parallelism. For, and for that, you really only really do need multiple cores. Um, but what all of these uh, languages as mentioned have in common is that it's not trivial. Like really getting things concurrent and really doing things in parallel is not trivial in there. And then you have to take care of maybe even, if, especially if you have some data you want to share or update, you have to consider, okay, like, well, what race conditions? Like, what if this this part, this thread touches this data while the other thread reads from that? Okay, do I need to synchronize that access? I still remember vividly, like with Java having the, what was it? Some, some keyword even for that, the sync keyword, where basically annotate like a function or method, like, okay, this is only ever allowed to be executed by one process, uh, one, one, one thread at a time. And let's just say that there's a lot of brain juice you have to put <laughs> into these kinds of programs to not make mistakes, which then at the end of the day, cr create weird Heisenbachs. People like, well, if you debug them, suddenly everything is working, but in production, it's doing wrong things because there's like a weird race condition, which doesn't pop up when you're debugging. And it's just, it's just a nightmare, to be honest. It's, it's a nightmare to work with these highly concurrent systems and language, which especially then have like mutable state, which a lot of different threads can touch. And yeah, it's hard to work with. And I'm very happy I don't have to do that on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. Well, you could always switch over to 
what is the name of that framework? It's like Erlang in Java. I forgot. The yeah, name but that was that. I mean, when when I was still working with Java, that was when 2015. Yeah. I mean, maybe Akka was a thing back then, but it was definitely not as popular as nowadays. So, I mean, if, if you look at a lot of the platforms, a lot of the languages out there, a whole lot of them are moving towards something like the Actor framework because, surprise, it's actually not that bad when you want to do things concurrently. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess this, this kind of brings us to what, what I said at the beginning that when you realize how painful it can be to look look, look into race conditions um what are the, the there's this one one concept where you basically have like a certain p uh, part of your concurrent code where every everyone is waiting until all the threads for example get there i forgot what it's called but like when you actually have to um, look at the primitives of concurrent code and like i really have to grok them to, to not make a mistake and then you come to a platform like the beam where every process has its own memory and, and state and every pro- and, and and all of that is not shared and you don't have to really consider race conditions in the same way at least as some of these other languages because it's just not possible that like another process fiddles with your own state you would like that each state can only be managed by its own process can only be modified and mutated by its own process and there's no no touching of private parts you know <laughs> and just like removes a whole host of friction which doesn't mean that yes the concurrency suddenly becomes easy but it becomes easier by uh, what i even say i would go out on a limb and say easier by an order of magnitude because most of the time there the kinds of concurrency we do in day-to-day job you probably don't even need to think about it and that's just a whole lot different like if if, if i remember my time from like java or ruby venturing into a c- concurrency and like saying okay now i actually would like to con- to execute this in parallel that was always an adventure let's say that yeah, I mean, actually, the one weird thing about Java with parallelism that makes it feel really weird is like they have this whole idea of like setters and getters. But if you use a getter, you could still modify the data, although you can't change the reference, right? But you can still change the data itself. I feel it's so strange. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, from my understanding, it's just convention, you know? So it's at the end of the day, it's a method. You can do whatever. But yeah, yeah but I, I do remember what you're talking about with the, I think it's atomic keyword. Is that what it was? Maybe it was atomic, yeah. I, it's, right. a, it's quite a while ago that I've been working in Java, so excuse me if I got that wrong. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's still a majority of languages, right? Like, it was, okay, this stuff I want to do at the same time, so I'm going to push it to some kind of external queue, right? There was never this idea of having a, uh, having a queue within your own system because yeah. you just never did that, right? Your system yeah. was, you always said, okay, I built my main app, but I still need to have a, what do you call that, queuing system or something? So it was like guaranteed you need that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then also from, I mean, it might be different nowadays. I didn't, I'm not that up to date on like the Node and JavaScript ecosystem anymore. But I do remember vividly that at some point when you actually said, okay, I would like to use multiple cores and I would like to like use every ounce of juice I can out of this machine, then you literally had to sp- spin up like, your application multiple times. Like that was, a, that, that was a thing you had to do. Then like, you had to take care, okay, like what now if I don't know, like I want to share some load, I want to share some work. Well, then you need some kind of external queue and then we get again, right? And all of that is just something the beam does for you. And from what I understand, like the whole notion of parallelism, so actually using all of the course, is also not that super old in on the beam. Like um, concurrency was always there with schedulers, but that those schedulers then actually had multiple schedulers and like each one by default for one core of the CPU. And then basically the, the, they, they take care of r- running a processes. That is something which only was added in a few years back. I don't know exactly when, maybe a decade about, but 
something like that. It's actually, I mean, considering that Erling is like 20 years old, it's it hasn't been there for that long, comparatively speaking. But now, now if you, I don't know, if I spin up eight processors, my machine has eight cores, and those processors do some CPU CPU bound work, then I just air quotes for free. They get evenly distributed on these CPU on these cores, and that is beautiful, if you ask me. It's beautiful, but what if you really don't want that, right? What if you have the system that's doing many things at once because your company's being cheap, and you actually want to limit this kind of problem, right? Have you ever thought about something like that? You mean like I have heavy heavy CPU bound work, but I don't want to put my machine to the limits because there might be still some spiky things incoming? Yeah, I don't know. Like uh, for instance, I think I brought up in a previous episode that uh, actually I had complaints from a I don't know if those are complaints, but every day we had these jobs that we had to do, and I used up all the cores, and it freaked the DevOps team out because they thought that there's something wrong with the server, like it's being hacked or something, because it was just at nothing, and all of a sudden giant spikes, you know, eight hundred percent CPU usage on an eight-core machine and then nothing for a while. And it was like, they just never seen something like that. Isn't it that bad, though? I mean, like, it depends, I guess. Then again, old senior saying, it depends on your use case, right? I mean, if you if you say, okay, maybe that's then the power the beam gives you to say, okay, I, I have my one application, my one code base, but maybe I have multiple releases out of that. And like one release is responsible of doing this heavy background work. I deploy those on more beefy machines and one other a part of my, re- my other release is deployed on more lightweight machines, which then put those things in even in external queue or you do clustering, right? Which, if it's the same code base, is more manageable, let's say that. Like, that's something you could do. It's like a, a thing, an option you could opt for, an option you could go for, and where you then again don't need to reach for an external system. But, of course, you get other trade-offs. Right, like if, if you get in that scenario and say, okay, I, I'm, 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 I have a scenario, I have a lot of CPU heavy work I need to do on a regular basis. I don't want to throttle down my, my, my web API or whatever. That, that should always stay responsive. But then you get in the scenario, okay, yeah, but what if you get a spike, right? What if you get a spike? Or what if you need to restart some of these things? Like, do, do you then lo- lose part of these messages? Is that okay? Can they, retain, can they be retained in memory? Maybe they should not be retained in memory. Maybe they should be persisted because you need to give a response for each and every one. Maybe Yes, it's like sitting close to home right now with this uh, queue you're talking about. Yeah, 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 it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that was okay. Alan was hinting at something we, 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 I pitched before we got before we hit record, but this is pretty much what, what we are like a question I'm tackling right now at work. Um, where surprisingly, maybe we have a scenario of one modulific Alex application, but at the end of the day, wouldn't even have to be modulific. Um, we want to build. And we want still to employ um, an event-driven architecture. We still cut those monolithic applications into very distinct parts into the very distinct bound contexts using the teachings of domain-driven design, figure out, okay, what, what is actually core to the business and what should we focus on? And they should, like these distinct parts, these modules, which is what I said, modulith, they ought to communicate mostly event-driven. But then you get exactly into that whole can of worms. Like, okay, what does it mean? Event driven? I could use any memory bus, but what if then, I don't know, my application crashes or Kubernetes decides to move it somewhere else because it's like, ah, this node is now kind of, I need to upgrade my node. I need to put pull down this part and I need to run another thing over there. Because inherently, if you do that, well, you have a stateful system, which you can also run on Kubernetes. Like, there's ways to do that. But then like, you have to consider, okay, like I have these messages, for example, what, what if I get an API request and that API request says, okay, now I want to emit an event. Event was successfully queued in memory, but exactly at that moment, your system goes down. Well, you lose that event. Is that okay? 
maybe that's okay if I send other push notifications, then 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 it might be, it might be okay if I lose like I don't know like one push notification or like a few push notifications occasionally. People like a business probably doesn't depend on every push notification being delivered. But if it's I don't know like a change action a user did, even a purchase or anything, like well, you better don't lose that event, and then you get into the realm of persistence. And to lead back to where where I'm going is there is no easily readily available library thing whatever in the Elixir ecosystem where you then don't reach for like, I don't know, RabbitMQ, Kafka, Google Pops up, whatever. But I was thinking because I, I, re I read some articles and it's actually, you can do this kind of pattern by use, using something called an outbox, like an outbox pattern where you say, okay, for example, in my Postgres, I have an outbox table and I put like my action of emitting an event means I write this thing into the outbox table. At that point, like it's guaranteed that this event is like consumed at least once, right? You get this at least once guarantee, which is what I'm talking about. And for that, there's just nothing out there. I mean, the articles will say, okay, if this is how you can do, you can even do subscribe and notify, which is something Postgres offers, so you don't have to do polling, but you have to build it yourself. And I was kind of surprised. Like the Gixi community is something where a lot of people say, hey, you have all of these moving parts and you can like combine them easily. But when you like get into that kind of area where you say, okay, like I, I want to leave the realm of anomial communication and I still want to retain concurrent work and whatever. <sighs> yeah. There there's no like when you have Oban for job queues, which uses Postgres. And I was I was hoping to see something similar for like for like an eventing bus. And you probably could maybe kind of abuse Oban <laughs> there. But <laughs> I don't know. I'm not convinced. <laughs> that this is the best way to go forward. So, um, yeah, where, where am I going with all of this? Uh, well, I'm going with all of this that, like, depending on your circumstances, uh, this concurrent, this concurrent uh, abilities uh, and in-memory abilities of Beam are super powerful, but maybe not what you're looking for. Yeah, I've said it a few times on the show. There's no free lunch here. No free lunch. You still have to do your job. Yeah, and sometimes you have to do the whole job from beginning to end because you kind of get these pieces, right? I think we were talking about that before the show. Is like, mm, you know, like OTP stuff gives you the tools to build what you need, but sometimes you wish you could just reach off the shelf and grab what you need. Yeah, exactly. Is what you're running into right now is that you there's nothing on the shelf, it sounds like. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah. And I was a bit surprised with that because I mean, there's a whole, like, I mean, people are talking about events and like eventing and, like, and, and Broadway pretty much is at least related to that, right? Like consume, consuming messages from some kind of queuing system, Kafka, RedMQ, whatever. But there's like nothing more simple, let's say that. Nothing more simple. Maybe maybe, maybe Redis is a good alternative. I don't know. Like, I, Maybe we can, can use Redis there where we say, but then again, we need Redis. Like, <laughs> I kind of don't want to use Redis. We have a Postgres. I don't know, like this idea of having this outbox table. I feel like a Postgres should suffice. You know what I'm saying? At least for the start. Hmm. We're not talking about crazy scale here. So, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed, you could say. I'm disappointed. Uh, yeah. 
It's probably a way to solve this one more easily than you think. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a really big thing. But you have, have you actually tried to, to do something and build out some simple prototype to see what happens? Not yet, but I'm probably, probably that's exactly what I'm going to do. Might even might even package it up and, and, and publish it at the library if it works well, right? I was, I, was, I was thinking that, I mean, like at the end of the day, um, I like the, the whole notion of the Elixir community around simplicity and like, uh, let, let's not over-engineer and let's not, not have a billion libraries which do like uh, all the same things in slightly different ways. But here I felt like I was like, I don't know, there, there is a niche here, there is a need here. Why the hell is this not filled? <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. Am I the only one with this, with this, kind, with this set of, problems with set of requirements seems kind of obvious to me but maybe it's not yeah odd odd to say the least but yeah then again to to, to lead back to to concurrency and parallelism if you i mean just as i just said like the system we are setting up right now we are not optimizing for i don't know huge throughput yet staying simple as i said but when you do want to optimize for huge throughput at some point you're also gonna have to ask yourself the question right like okay what what if, I, if, I, if I'm hitting a ceiling here? What if I have a most beefy machine, I don't know, on Amazon, we bought it for three years, we have five of those, and now we hit like we hit like a hard limit where we can, cannot scale anymore. Like, what do you do then? At that point, you get, you, get to, you get to the situation where, okay, I have to make a decision. We have to, if you cannot scale anymore and you cannot reduce the incoming work, you have to drop work. That's the only thing which is left over. You have to drop work. Have you ever, can, uh, did you ever get in a situation like that, Alan? I want to drop my work every day, but it's nothing <laughs> in my system. It uh, is. Luckily, I, I don't know if it's luckily or unluckily, I just never had so much load where I need to start doing load shedding, as we kind of talked about the term before, right? Where yeah, it's like you're just overloaded, you had to start dropping things. But to me now, I think about load shedding. This is actually what happened in Texas, what past winter or whatever, where people kept losing all the power to their home. Like So load shedding to me is a really a, a very scary word. And, and if you actually talk to your client or talk to your boss or whoever, right? And if you say, well, what if we get overloaded with data? Can we start dropping these things? I can't think of a situation where, uh, you know, somebody would say, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Just, you know, you can drop these messages. Not a big deal. I mean, how do you kind of figure out what you can and what you cannot drop and what you should and should not drop? I guess it's but boils down to making a business decision, which is in this case probably not an easy one. Uh, where you know, say, okay, okay, maybe maybe we can squeeze out a bit more, but that's like an un- uncertain thing thing here. And that would, I don't know, let's say at least require like a month of research and effort from like I don't know four people team. Let's say that right where they figure out, okay, can, can we squeeze out more? Or you say, make a decision about, okay, this kind of work, it's not great if, if we drop some, but it, it's also not going to kill us. And there's a good little story from Discord, actually from 2016, I think it was, where they kind of hit that, that limit. They are also using Elixir, but they hit that limit with some of their Discord servers. And in that particular case, it was uh, Pokemon Go and Overwatch, which were both super popular back then. Where had, they had so many members in these servers that occasionally they had like these these notification spikes. Uh, so for example, if, if, they, if somebody on the server used an everyone, like the moderators or whatever, and notified every single person on, on the whole server. And if you have, I don't know, like three million people on a, on a, on a server and like suddenly in one moment you have like one message and you have to deliver three million push notifications. I can easily see how that might get you in a situation of, okay, this is such a ridiculous load spike. Yes, sure, maybe you could over-provision insanely, but then again, that's the cost cost benefit ratio there. Like, okay, we, we could run so many so many instances of this app on so many uh, virtual machines that we could handle that load spike. But is it worth it? And in that case, the answer is arguably no. Like, because that is, I think, it's like it's a perfect example of some load where you can do uh, load shedding and don't 
lose the port of your business. Like if you only deliver 2 million of these 3 million push notifications, yeah, kind of sucks to get, not get a push notification maybe, but it's not the end of the day. And that was exactly the scenario where they, where they had on their hands. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it depends on what that notification is. I mean, is it that somebody's leaving or coming back online? Yeah. Is it that, yeah, there, I mean, for me, if you drop a message, like if I want to know somebody sent the message, that would be a tricky bit where I think I'd want to get that, especially if I was added. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it I think it's, I need to, you did send the, the link over. Maybe we should drop it to the show notes about this, like about how Discord does yeah, stuff. Yeah, we can drop it in the show notes. But I mean, I would be kind of curious about like what you can and cannot do. I mean, I can understand certain traffic want to stop, right? Like, I think, uh, oh, sorry, we had, a, is it the last guest we had? Was that the guy from Poland? I forgot his name now. Lucas, I believe his name was actually. He was talking about about um, one of our previous guests. They were talking about how they can scale out uh, Phoenix Pub Sub, I think. And one of the issues that they had was like, you know, if people are coming online, offline, you don't really want to send every single event from uh, presence, right? You want to be able to somehow bundle those up or something like that, or just stop showing them after some time. So that, that's a really interesting problem that they've already taken a look at. Yeah, that's kind of the realm you get that into. And it's also like, there's also an already made answer there. Like, for example, like, as you just said, like somebody gets online, somebody gets offline. Okay, maybe you don't want to deliver every single one of those. But maybe you also have some work items where you have guarantees around um, like response times and it's only really valuable to d- respond to the work request if it's not if it's like in a time frame of like 200 milliseconds right it's okay if it takes longer than 200 milliseconds then just forget it because maybe the underlying information you have is then already outdated again and there's no value in responding anymore all those are also kind of scenarios like i could see and there's the the, the book from oh god, Fred, 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 Erling and Anger. What is the what, what is the for his full name again? Fred, Fred Herbert, Herbert. Yeah, yeah. Fred Herbert, Herbert. Yeah. And like this is this free PDF, free free book from him. You can find that online stuff goes bad. Erling and Anger. We can link it in the show notes. And it's a pretty short book. It's like under hundred pages. And there's also like an, a chapter on exactly this. Like at some point, you might get in a situation where you have to shed load. And it's an uncomfortable truth, but there's different ways to go about it. And for example, if, if you have a scenario of like, I don't know, I can only, it only makes sense to respond in 200 milliseconds, your way, the way how you would shed load is different from if you say, okay, I would like to handle every possible message as far as possible. And then it's acceptable if all of them get delayed. Because in one scenario, you might want to use a queue. In another one, you might want to use a stack for messages which are incoming. And then maybe shed, like cut off the queue or cut off the stack, the items on the stack, and all those kind of things. And those are decisions you have to make. Those are decisions you have to make. And those are decisions you, the system and the platform cannot make for you. And those are scenarios you will have to find answers to depending on your particular business use case and it's not fun it's it's hard work <laughs> like <laughs> at least brain wise yeah fred seems to have advice for every single crazy tricky situation out there so i really love his his advice it's when he writes about it he's got a lot to say which could be good could be bad depends if you want a short answer you're just not going to get it because i think most of the time for these kind of tricky problems there's no short sweet simple answer of do this do that just depends on your specific case like you said okay if we don't start load shedding then shit's gonna start breaking and what do we do yeah it's business to buy you a ton of beefy machines that just sit there waiting for you to use them? Probably not. Exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, they did like then they then you enter the the realm of what serverless promises, right? But and they say like infinitely scalable, but even at that point, like I mean, also also these serverless functions run on, on physical hardware, and there is a theoretically hard limit of how many instances you can spin up of your lambda. I don't think it's it's a practical hard limit, to be honest. I would expect that that, that there's no scenario where you actually end up having so many instances of your lambda that you break Amazon's warehouse, the data center. But still, it's it, those are the kind of like questions you do where, 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 where it becomes difficult, where, where you have to make business decisions because of technical limitations. And like I said, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's hard work. So I think, Alan, you have like a little story also to tell about, about freaking people out with doing a lot of CPU-bound work on a regular cadence. And then maybe... I feel like I've already I've already just mentioned this a little bit ago, right? So, well, was it was I mean, it on? Had... on did we already were we already recording? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. But in any in any case, I mean, I think I, I definitely mentioned it many times over here before. I had to suck in about I think it's at least 200 XML files and create hundreds of PHP files, and it would. The crazy thing is that the whole process took about 10 seconds, which was just fantastic. Actually, the hardest part was actually just creating simlinks. I don't know why that was taking so much more. But I was getting complaints from the DevOps team that they thought something was being hacked because, yeah, like, actually, this is before it was 10 seconds wrong. It was like about 10 minutes long originally because I had everything in Elixir before I switched some of it to uh, Rust. In any case, it was like 10 minutes long and they were like, they didn't know what's going on because that machine didn't do anything. All it did was just serve PHP files and it was a test server. It wasn't an actual production server at the time. And so for things to just be humming along because nobody's ever touching it till all of a sudden going nuts where all the cores are going crazy and the RAM usage is also spiked up at the time. I think it I think I need like eight gigs of RAM because of uh, sweet XML just wanted to eat everything, not let it go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, they just freaked out and they thought they were being hacked and they didn't know what's going on. And I just had to explain to them, no, 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 you know, I'm just using this. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so that definitely freaks people out. And so they kind of brought another question to the phrase, like, what if you just wanted to just use partial usage, right? So we us talk about how Erlang and Alexa will efficiently use your machine by using all of it can. But what if you don't want to use everything? You know, yeah. what can you do about that? Yeah, to be honest, I'm, I, I think you could probably do some work in parallel and say, okay, only ever execute three of those at once. Like, for example, if, if we do a task as a, a stream the API, there, there, there are options there where you can say, I only want four of those to be executed in parallel. And that, that might be because you don't want to overload all of your cores at once. But also it might be because maybe you want to hit an external API and you want to get rate limited if you hit too, too often at once, you know? It's okay, like, I can, it can handle, I don't know, let's say 10 requests at once, but not more. And those are also then scenarios where you have all of these concurrent concurrency capabilities, but maybe you don't want to use all of those. Maybe you don't want to use every single, maybe you don't want to do it all at once. And I've, I've been wondering, and, and and this is I guess then also where our listeners come in is is there like a like a, like an auto scaling option for the beam where you say, hey, I have this work here and it's like low priority, but it's CPU bound and tuck along on this, please. But if other work comes in, this has more priority, right? Like basically like a prioritization scheme. I'm not aware of that, to be honest. That I can say, hey, the, the work which happens in these tasks over here, it's like it, it has to be get done at some point, but it's not high priority. So if like for example, web requests come in, then maybe maybe wean off on these and don't and do more of a web request. 
Are you aware of anything like that? Like, I don't know, schedule priority kind of? The only thing that is coming to mind is I kind of remember there's something with the message box where you can somehow, like things get pattern matched in a certain way. I forgot what it was exactly, but I mean, I can imagine that you can somehow use pattern matching to make this kind of work. You you can pattern match on the messages in an inbox. So you could... Yes. You can... You can Usually, you would pull out messages of the inbox in order, but by pattern matching, you can actually pull them out out of order. So maybe, yeah, maybe that that is the way you would go about this. Is okay, like yeah, so. receive and pull mm-hmm. out a certain type of high priority message first. But that, that it happens on like on the process level, right? Which I mean, if you have some kind of central like broker, I mean, you could do it, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I guess that that could work. So you would finish up on the low priority work and. Basically, pull pull messages from from the, from the inbox which have more high priority. Yeah, that would work. Interesting. I would I would be interested. Like, if if any of you folks out there has actually done something like that, like on a, on a beam scheduling process level, like actually get in touch because I think that will be that will be hella interesting to to hear about like also some of the pitfalls there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of things that we have never even heard of that people are doing. I mean, there's crazy stuff out there. I mean. How can WhatsApp scale so well and these other systems scale so well without some of these really interesting tricks out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, these these big scale systems, they, you, you get into a whole different area of challenges, <laughs> which which are different from the the, 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 the day to day struggles uh, of a average Joe web developer, you know, or an average Jane web developer. Oh yes, you weren't being very inclusive there, Sasha. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay, so that's just on on what I have to say about concurrency and parallelism and do's and don'ts and nuts and bolts and all the kind of questions and issues which come from that. I'm I'm curious, Alan. Did you actually ever were able to I don't know create like a race condition or a deadlock in on the beam? I definitely was possible, but nothing. Hmm. I just never really write stuff like that. I mean, the only thing, I mean, how, how have you ever ran into something like that before? I don't think I, mean, I ever have. I, I have on other languages, but never, never in Elixir. <laughs> I mean, you kind of just, I mean, you, when you program in Elixir, you're really writing things asynchronously, like all the time, especially with message passing, because you don't know what's going to happen when. Yeah, but it, like I said, I've never had it happen to me that I, that I kind of had like a circular dependency, I don't know, and it got into a deadlock situation. It just never happened to me. I think also OTP actually gives you good tools to avoid that happening of like how you structure your application for su- supervision trees and like how you then also take, need to consider the, the starting order of processes. And all of that, I think, helps from my personal experience in avoiding these kind of situations. And I don't say that it becomes impossible because I mean, I can think of how I might would create a deadlock. But I feel like uh, the way the OTP is uh, structured mm-hmm. and makes you structure application helps you avoid those kind of issues. Does that make sense? Not to mention, but also OTP itself. Like, I'm not talking about structuring your code, but just in general, like what's underneath the Gen server is crazy. Like, there's so many things that can happen, and they already abstract all that craziness for you. Yeah, especially when you get like into vanity pretty bolts of like I don't know links and monitors and like. 
capturing exits and all of those are tools used under the hood, right, to, to do the message passing and build the primitives like supervisors uh, on the beam. And yeah, it, it does a whole lot of work for you. I would have no interest in building things like that myself, to be honest, at least not on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> like as a toy project and I can figure out how it works, sure, but I, I'm very glad that I have these these tools and I can use them and I don't have to think as much about, about how they work under the hood. Which then again, I think, circles back to the beginning, right? Like when I do concurrency in other languages, I need to t- think about all of these nuts and bolts and how do they work under the hood. But on the beam, a lot of that is taken care of for me, which then again, doesn't make it free, but makes it easier. It's not easy, but it's easier. Yeah, I don't know. I would be, I wish I could be smart enough to come up with all these kind of solutions that they have. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I don't know exactly what they all do, but I do know that there's a lot of weird edge cases that they help you to solve. I'm, I'm very certain that most of those has been, have been built through anger because it broke one way or another. And then somebody sat down and was like, what the heck happened? And figured out, oh, this happened. Gosh, okay, we have to handle this edge case here. I, w- I would bet money that most of these these learnings came from that, came from some, came from stories like that. Yeah, I think maybe we need to bring somebody from the Erlang team and, and have them talk about some of this kind of stuff. It'd be very interesting to hear from them, to hear about. I mean, actually, I do have one question, which I'm sure, well, if you can answer this, I'd be surprised. Like, how would you, if you were, if you were told of some kind of situation, how can you actually deduce what the problem is so you can make a fix in Erlang to solve these kind of weird edge cases? It's like, okay, I sent a message, something happened, and then this was the expected response, and this didn't happen, and that happened, and I really have no idea. It's, yeah, it's crazy. How, how you would debug these kind of things? Debug it, but also like, how would you come up with a fix, and how would you even test the fix? Because then you have a preemptive, or sorry, it's a preemptive scheduler, right? Yeah. I think it's what it's called. Yeah, preemptive schedule where something can happen any moment, right? Your message, although you said to send it now, it could your process could have stopped just before it sent the message and then all of a sudden resume and sent the message or it could have sent the message and then pause, right? Because it, it's going to be just running the code after so many reductions and just stop, right? So how does it actually work and how do you actually test to make sure stuff actually is working? I have no answers to these questions. <laughs> but yeah, that would be interesting to, to, to hear about. Okay, um, anything else you would like to attach? Because... Otherwise, I think we we kind of got it covered, and we could just make it a bit shorter today. No, I think I think very good topic, right? So there's a lot of goodness in concurrency, and there's a lot of stuff to get out of the beam. And uh, even with that, though, you still have to be careful because, like you like you're running into things may happen, and you don't necessarily have a solution already built for you. So what do you do? Yeah. How can you build that out yourself, or should you? Right? The question is, should you build another thing? Yeah. Now, another yeah, question yeah. is, can you actually limit your system so that you're not using up everything? Because you may freak out people, <laughs> or you may just be using a server more than you you really should. Right? Load shedding, these kind of things, or somehow rate limiting or resource limiting your system. Yeah. I mean, if, if, and if you, if you don't do that, then things are going to break in unexpected ways, regardless of like, if you don't get up clear on your constraints, for example, and you just do everything in memory. And then after your system goes down, you lose some messages, you realize, oh, maybe there's messages who should not have been lost. Then you have a problem. <laughs> so you get, I guess, get clear on your constraints, get clear on, on what it means maybe to break those constraints, because it might be possible that occasionally um, you cannot satisfy all of them and you have to make trade-offs and decide, okay, what does it mean if I break those constraints? And yeah, get clear on the failure cases. And I think that even though there is the mantra that let it crash in Erlang, that doesn't mean you should not think about what it means when you let it crash. Like what are the implications of letting it crash? For example, to get like a one more note on like load shedding, 
there's also the way of like if your application gets overloaded and I don't know like eats all of the available memory and just crashes with an out of memory error. That's also a way of load shedding. <laughs> It's just a very uncontrolled way of load shedding. <laughs> and you probably would maybe have a more well-defined path of how to deal with overload and to have to like, make conscious decisions about how to deal with that instead. Okay. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So, then let's get to picks. Alan, do you have any picks for us this week? Actually, I just have one, Mike, based on a conversation before about, about load shedding, right? There's an awesome blog post from Fred called Handling Overload, where he talks about the situation of load shedding and gives some ways about how to do it. I think it's really fantastic. Very long read, but if you're interested and you have a system that has a lot of load and you're looking at doing something like this, I think it's a fantastic read. And uh, yeah, otherwise, I mean, I think his book also goes into load shedding too, right? The uh, Erlang and Anger. Yeah, it has a, it has a chapter on, on, on that. Yeah, so there's more information over there. But it's, I mean... Yeah, I think it's interesting to read all by itself. And oh, one last thing too. Maybe I can drop, I already dropped a link into the into the chat between us, right? The the article about gen stage where they actually talk about module buffering, right? That we talked about before the show. I think that's also another good one too. So that's another thing that handles uh, load shedding for you too. Nice. Yeah, the, 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 I'm, I might have to make some room on my to read list to actually squeeze those in because I'm not sure I've read either one of those. Um, okay, I have no picks which are specific to the topic today. Sorry for that, I guess. Um, but I would like to pick something completely different. And it's another video game. Yes, it's a video game. <laughs> it's I've been gaming a lot more recently. I don't know. It's just I have I have these phases. Like I I always alternate between watching shows on like good shows on Netflix or whatever, or gaming more. And right now I'm more in the game in the gaming uh, valley. And this is probably an old pick for quite a lot of people because the. This game has been out for a while and has been popular for a while. But if you are into horror games, especially into cooperative horror games, then, and you have not heard of Phasmophobia, then you might want to check it out. Um, I'm actually pretty bad with horror games, usually. I, I, I get scared quite easily. Uh, but this one is a little bit different in that you don't directly engage uh, like the horror but you get into a house as a group of up to four people and you have to um, do some investigation kind of work and figure out what kind of ghost is there and the, there's also ghost events and the ghost can go on hunt, on hunts and also kill you but it's really more about okay like let's figure out what's this ghost let's let's, do, let's get some objectives done and let's get out as quick as possible again so I don't know. It has a nice rhythm to it. It's just—it's a lot of fun with people. It, like, it, it gets scary, but with, with friends together, it's also kind of silly sometimes. So it has like a nice mix of being scary and silly and funny. I would definitely recommend if you have like a group of friends who would be up for that kind of uh, game, then check it out. It's also, I think, only like what thirteen bucks. So it's not that expensive, to be honest. And it's it's a lot of fun. I can I, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Is that thirteen dollars with or without inflation? Without, with, like, that's just the price. It is end of story. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so that's two thousand twenty-one dollars or two thousand twenty-two dollars. <laughs> yeah, so that's my that's my pick for for this week. Okay, then thank you, folks, for listening to our incoherent or I hope at least somewhat coherent rambling on concurrency and its pitfalls. And tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Rex. Bye bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.